Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the, the Headlines. Headlines. Coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. I'm co-host Cal Raustiala, and today I have with me Professor Jean Galbraith of University of Pennsylvania Law School, and we're going to be talking about the issue of the foreign affairs power of the several states in the United States, and specifically, as, as many listeners will know, uh, there is a lawsuit that the Trump administration has filed against the state of California with regard to a particular climate agreement. Uh, but this is a kind of species of a more general phenomenon that's surprisingly widespread. So, Gene, uh, I'm really happy to have you on the podcast. You uh, know a lot about this and many other foreign relations issues, and uh, I'm eager to get into it. So, um, Thank you so for we, having me. Sure, sure. My pleasure. So maybe we could just begin uh, with a kind of general view, maybe starting with the constitutional question of, of the restraints on the states, either via the Compact Clause or other sources, and then maybe talk a bit about international law. But let's start with the constitutional side. So what what can uh, what can states do and what can they not do as a general matter in foreign affairs? Uh, so at the time of the framing, the framers were quite concerned about the states um, making their own foreign policy. And into the text of the Constitution in Article 1, Section 10, they put in two significant clauses. Uh, one said, no state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation. And the other says, no state shall without the consent of Congress, uh, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power. Uh, and there are, there are other um, prohibitions. They can't engage in war. They can't do a bunch of other things as well. Uh, but those are the ones that are, are most significant in terms of the international agreement-making context. Now, that's the, the what the text of the Constitution says, and that was written at a time when the premise of the founders was that Congress was going to be an active body capable of doing a lot of, of lawmaking. Uh, and as we've moved over time, the actual practice uh, is that states and cities too are engaged in international affairs in all kinds of ways. They have sister city agreements, they deal with immigrants, they go on trade missions to other countries, they have to manage border relations uh, with counterparts and subnational governments across the border. Uh, and. Duncan Hollis's work documents that there are hundreds of situations in which states enter into agreements of some level of formality, um, sometimes informal, sometimes more formal, with uh, international counterparts. And so what we have on the one hand is constitutional text that sounds quite robust about states staying out of foreign policy. And then on the other hand, we have a practice that is, I think, driven basically by the necessities of our changing society of states uh, interfacing with international counterparts. And so this case, this climate case, uh, is really at the intersection of those two trends. And it's an um, unusual case in that there's really been no litigation, uh, maybe one, one case in 1840, let's say, but no litigation about these kinds of um, extent to which states can enter into international agreements across borders. Well, I want to circle back to that. That's a great start to that 1840 case. But maybe let's just begin, if you can shed any light on what was intended or what's currently understood as the distinction between, let's say, a, a compact, which needs perhaps the assent of Congress. I guess that's a debated point, since it seems like many of these agreements actually don't have that assent. 
uh, and something that's prohibited, some other kind of agreement? Do we know what the distinction was intended to be? Uh, so we don't know, I think, with the crystal clarity that we would always like to know uh, these questions. Um, a treaty alliance or confederation, I think, is, is commonly thought to be a really big deal agreement. Um, uh, the sort of examples that were given when you're entering into kind of a permanent alliance or something like that. Uh, uh, by contrast, an agreement or compact is thought to be an agreement of a, of a lesser scale. Uh, and in the, in the context of interstate agreements, where the word compact is also used in the Constitution, similarly says states can't enter into agreements or compacts with other states without congressional consent, uh, there's another Supreme Court opinion that says, look, it's not every agreement even that rises to the level of an agreement or compact. Uh, rather, it's ones that are fairly significant. And it gives the example of saying, um, that's a, it's a Justice Field opinion, uh, saying that one set of agreements that aren't going to rise to that level would be if two states are dealing with a cross-border health crisis, uh, for example. And so okay. we, don't have, we don't have great precision about what these terms mean, and we haven't had the courts uh, do a lot in the 20th or in nothing in the 20th, 21st century to clarify it in the foreign power compact clause context. Okay. And is it your sense that that's because either Congress or the State Department or the White House uh, are somewhat unaware of the, the breadth, the depth of the practice of agreement making on the part of the states? Or do you think that they are aware and are sort of fine up until now, obviously up until this particular instance, as you said, there really hasn't been much attention, litigation, uh, et cetera. Uh, is it that uh, they've essentially acquiesced? I th certainly think they have acquiesced. I mean, that they've been aware, maybe of not the entire magnitude, but of um, fair magnitude, and in some cases, quite affirmatively um, endorsed. So if we could turn to this climate case for a moment. Yes. Uh, this, this comes out of a, a history of basically congressional inaction on, on climate. And so what's gone on, Congress hasn't done anything about climate when it needs to, and that's created a void. And into that void has stepped California, which I don't have to tell you has a very strong interest uh, in regulating climate with its coastline and extreme weather. I hope that the fires are, are not affecting your lungs right now uh, out there, but they're raging. Uh, and so on the one hand, you have the um, California stepping in. We have to deal, we have to deal with climate. Uh, and that's creating for California, an on and off relationship with the executive branch of the government that's really depending on who's controlling the executive branch. Uh, so under the Obama administration, I would say you had not just acquiescence, but enthusiastic support of California's climate policy, which has included domestic legislation uh, within the state and also included California going out and doing all this international interfacing around building consensus with um, largely subnational governments, but some, some national ones too, around uh, the idea of making pledges to address climate. And the uh, executive branch was really enthusiastic about that. And now in comes the Trump administration, which has a very different um, set of priorities and is um, hostile to international cooperation um, generally around climate, at least on any terms that we see um, going on in, in the world today. Uh, and so it now has filed this lawsuit to push back uh, on California's 
in particular on California's uh, agreement with Quebec and the cross-border cap-and-trade trading that's going on. But I think it's a more part of a broader trend whereby the Trump administration has been suing California and pushing back at California over various climate-related actions. And similarly, California has been suing the Trump administration uh, over all kinds of climate-related actions. So I see this case um, in part as uh, a particular lawsuit, but in part of a, as a broader political story um, about climate policy. And the fact that it's gotten to this level of litigation between the two actors uh, is really distinctive. Uh, and so I think the salience of this particular agreement may be a bit for itself, but is also for what it represents as a story about how uh, actors within the United States approach climate change. I completely agree. And, and sitting here in California, we do as a state have a lot of a focus and attention to obviously air quality generally has been a longstanding issue, which often dovetails with climate policy. Uh, but climate change as, a, as an issue is one that the the state of California, the people of California, I think do really take seriously. I you know, personally agree. I'm proud of that as a Californian. Uh, and, and California, given its size and scale, fifth largest economy in the world, has an important role to play in this and has, has played that role. And I think it's interesting as an aside, I want to get into the merits of the suit, but it is interesting that California has acted as a quasi-sovereign actor on the international stage uh, increasingly over the years, uh, both kind of in formal and in informal ways. And that's, that's, I think, as you say, a reflection of the fact that not much is happening in the Beltway on this particular topic, uh, but also just the kind of ability of governors like Jerry Brown to fly around the world and be treated like a head of state. Uh, so it's a kind of interesting larger phenomenon. So let's let's drill down a little bit on the kind of the gravamen of the lawsuit and and its legal merits. We can get into whether, as a policy matter, we ought to have these agreements be uh, more more prevalent or less prevalent. But but kind of on the legal merits, uh, first of all, is this suit meritorious in your view? And and what what are the claims that are being made specifically legally? All right. So to well, to be a bit more specific about this suit, so the. Uh, United States has sued California, not over its climate policy at large in this case, but rather over the fact that uh, California has a regulatory cap and trade system um, that it uses to try to um, regulate emissions coming out from certain big emitters. And it has reached an agreement with Quebec uh, and an agree um, that the two, uh, the two subnational governments are going to honor each other's, the credits each other's give to um, businesses, essentially. So if you've, got, um, if you've got a compliance certificate in Quebec and you get the right certifications, you can go ahead and cash that one in in California uh, and vice versa. So this is a way, basically, to make a bit less onerous California's cap-and-trade restrictions on corporations that are dealing in both, um, both jurisdictions. Uh, and there's a formal agreement about that. And then there's also um, a corporation that has been set up basically by California and, and Quebec called the Western Climate Initiative, which does all the logistics of handling, handling this. And so you have on the one hand this agreement, uh, and then on the other hand you have this, this corporation that effectively serves to coordinate standards um, between uh, California, Quebec, and now Nova Scotia uh, as well is in the Western Climate Initiative, although doesn't have a comparable formal agreement um, with uh, 
California and Quebec the way that California and Quebec do. So if that's the underlying structure of the what's going on, the lawsuit that the United States has brought raises um, four claims uh, against California's ability to do this. One is that this is a treaty alliance or confederation. A second claim is that if it's not a treaty alliance or confederation, it's an agreement or compact uh, and needs the consent of Congress. Um, the third is that the president's foreign affairs powers are impeded uh, to an unconstitutional uh, degree by California's cooperation with Quebec on this issue. And the fourth is a claim that California is um, uh, failing to honor the uh, Foreign Commerce Clause, which is a clause in the Constitution that gives Congress the power to regulate uh, foreign commerce. So I have different views about the merits of each of these um, particular claims. I guess I'll start by saying um, I have actually some initial questions about whether the United States has standing here. Hmm. I think it probably does, but if you ask me what's the concrete and particularized harm that the United States suffers by the fact that corporations are getting credit breaks in the cap and trade, yeah, uh, I actually have a hard time putting my finger on that. But it does feel to me that since they're alleging violations on national sovereignty, there should be some way that the United States gets to standing. But I don't think that's a totally trivial that's interesting. Um, trivial issue in this case. Um, but so assuming they have standing, and that, again, that's not a foreign affairs issue. That's a general um, doctrine of justiciability that the courts will apply. Uh, then you've got these four claims. And I myself see the Treaty Alliance or Confederation claim as a, a non-starter. Uh, I'm very skeptical of the Foreign Commerce Clause claim. And the middle two, I think, will be interesting to see how they play out in litigation. The one about, is this a compact or an agreement? Uh, and does this violate some kind of presidential foreign affairs um, power? Both of those, I think, are interesting issues that it's going to take um, a district court a long time uh, to work through, possibly through uh, the end of 2020. Uh, there's a lot there to unpack, but let's just start with the issue of uh, the nature of this. So, how would you argue or why do you think it's an open question about whether it is or is not a compact? Uh, I think it's an open question because we have basically uh, no modern precedent on this issue. And so there's going to be very little guidance for a lower court to look to. On the one hand, we have these constitutional texts that I've talked about. On the other hand, we have... Um, this practice of acquiescence that we that we discussed, and you have a fair amount of analogous precedent that one can look to in the context of interstate agreements. Uh, and, but even that leaves a lot of um, a lot of space for figuring out what's is or is not a compact or agreement. Now there are. Um, in, in international law, generally, we have this move towards soft law, of course, um, non-binding agreements. And there's a question of are non-binding agreements that the parties don't intend to sort of frame in any kind of formal way, are they rise to the level of agreements or compact? Inter the California and Quebec agreement uh, has more formal indicia than do most of the, these kinds of um, agreements. Uh, it's got like an entry into force clause. It's got... Um, 
idea that you should give notice and for termination or withdrawal. It has a sort of set of indicia of formality that we typically in the international context associate more with a, a binding international agreement uh, than a non-binding one. So I think that will that puts the um, case at least in the ballpark of possibly an agreement uh, or a compact. And then the further question, is that going to really rise to the level of one uh, that counts as one for constitutional questions? And I think, of course, it's going to have a hard time uh, working through that. Are you suggesting it might be a treaty under international law? No, but I think it's the more it has... Um, Indicia that look binding in the way that international agreements have indicia that look binding, the more mm -hmm. it's going to look like something we might think of as an agreement uh, or a compact, which are terms that the Constitution sort of imported from international law. In some ways, they're set out in, in Wattel. Right. 18th century international law. Yes, exactly. A very, a very different context. Uh, and I, I can imagine a result where the court says, I don't really like this formalized agreement that's been entered into with Quebec. But I can handle the fact if you guys quietly coordinate through the Western Climate Initiative, I can handle that piece of it. So I can imagine a court, on the one hand, um, upholding both the agreement and everything else, or on the other hand, striking down the agreement, um, but then uh, leaving the Western Climate Initiative to go ahead and do its soft law coordination um, across borders that it's hmm, interesting. So if the drafters uh, within California, Quebec and elsewhere had, had not kind of given this treaty like language, uh, you know, sort of treaty formalities uh, to the agreement, you think it might have a better chance in court? Well, I, I think it has a perfectly good chance in court right now as it is, but I think it would have an even stronger chance. Um, and this is because soft law has become such a tool for everybody I mean, the executive branch uses this to sort of get around potential constitutional limits on what the executive branch can do without Congress or the Senate uh, in international agreement making. And that creates um, a real set of executive power that we might have reason to be at least a bit worried about structurally. Uh, and I actually think that there's a real structural value to counterbalancing that with the idea that if the, the states can do the same thing. Uh, they can enter into international um, commitments that may be somewhat different from what the executive branch uh, is doing and counterbalance that, that um, scope of presidential power uh, that's out there. All this in a world where Congress doesn't act. If Congress wants to step in, it can fix all of this. It can say, I authorize California to do this, uh, or I don't authorize California to do this. If Congress speaks clearly, uh, then this issue, I think, will go away. All we have is what's going on in the state of congressional inaction. Now, that point that Congress could authorize that, that wouldn't be true if a court comes out and concludes this was a treaty alliance or confederation. Uh, and it seems to part of why I see, say, see that claim as really quite meritless, is it seems to me absurd to conclude that Calif uh, Congress could not affirmatively authorize California to do its cap and trade or regulatory coordination with Quebec on this issue. That seems like the quintessential thing that it makes sense for Congress to be able to authorize that if it wants to do. Hmm. I agree. Do you think it's legally significant that the agreement is with Quebec and not with Canada as a whole? In so, other words, the, yeah. fact, the fact that there is you know, a province and a state as opposed to two sovereign states. I think that is um, 
makes California's position is another factor that makes California's position stronger. Uh, this is not a hey, we're um, formally through something that really looks a lot like a treaty undercutting the United States with its international counterparts, but rather we're dealing with our subnational counterparts in a way that happens, you know, in lots of other contexts uh, in order to manage what we see as a shared problem of the commons. So I think that's certainly to, to California's uh, a benefit in, in, in this case. Agreed, agreed. So let's turn to the policy dimensions of this. And I guess just kind of to step back for a second, uh, I can see a few different interesting questions here. One would be, if California loses, uh, what are the implications then for all the existing, apparently hundreds, it, it appears hundreds, uh, of these agreements that already exist amongst the many different states? And then secondarily, maybe more significant, is it a good idea that states can do this? So in other words, if we were you know, sitting back and kind of maybe considering a constitutional amendment, would we want to empower states to have these sorts of agreements? Or do we think that the kind of one voice rationale uh, that's often given in these contexts is actually quite significant and it's problematic that whether you and I might agree with the position of California, I know I certainly do agree that California ought to have a robust climate change and cap and trade system, uh, that uh, the President of the United States disagrees. And, you know, we can't have this kind of crosstalk on, on these issues. Um, so, so maybe start with the first, what are the implications of a loss? And then let's turn to whether this is something that, that is actually a good idea as a general matter. Um, so... On the implications of the loss, I think, and then realistically, I think this case, um, a loss in this case is uh, unlikely to happen unless President Trump wins re-election or, or another Republican nominee wins re-election in 2020, um, in that I don't see this case being likely to be decided at, certainly at the uh, appellate level um, in, that, in that time frame. There's a lot for a, for a district court to digest here, but let, let, let's play through that. Um, assume, suppose there is a loss and it goes all the way as far up as you want and there's um, a loss. I would be very surprised if the loss was, on, was done in a broad way that um, struck down the power of states and localities to coordinate um, with transnational counterparts. Um, because that goes on so much because that's functionally necessary uh, in how the government works because Congress, it's understood, just doesn't get around to approving uh, these things very much. A court would really, if, it, if, it, if this were written really broadly, it would be striking down so much practice uh, that it would take a um, very formalist, unpracticed interest uh, focused court to do it in a broad way. And I'd be surprised if you would see a court want to do that, especially in, in, in the first case. Agreed. Way up. So I don't think, I mean, I think that if, um, if California loses this particular case, the message that's likely to come out of that loss would be, uh, do it more subtly, please. Uh, really? Okay. Now on this question of, is it a good idea that states can do uh, sort of all this foreign affairs um, activity. Uh, I don't think there's an absolute answer to that, right? There are certainly some things we don't want to see states doing in the foreign affairs um, space. We don't want to see the state of Washington agreeing with Canada that Canada can send all its troops in 
uh, to Washington State uh, or, or something like that. And then, of course, there are things I think we do want to agree that states and localities should be able to do, um, you know, sister cities, trade trips, um, sort of expressive gestures and so forth. And then the question is just how are we going to uh, define the zone in, in the middle? And I guess I'm come around to the idea that there's a virtue to this, this um, what I call uncooperative foreign affairs federalism, where you have um, states and localities able to push back at the executive branch in a space where Congress isn't acting. Um, that that is a, is a kind of a check and a balance that's consistent with our, our structural constitutional values. Um, although I think in practice, in this climate space, what I would really like to see going forward um, is for Congress to pass um, a climate legislation generally and climate legislation that would explicitly allow states to go above the federal floor it sets, explicitly approve of states engaging in certain kinds of um, international cooperation, and also um, have explicitly protect local governments if they want to um, go beyond what their state governments do, because not all states, it's not, the story of progressive states is not um, in climate in the United States is not nearly as widespread as the story of progressive cities. Uh, and often those cities are operating in non-progressive states. So I think that's what I would, would like to see, but I don't have a perfect answer for what should be the exact test uh, for when you want states to be engaging uh, internationally and when you don't. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned cities because we do see, I mean, certainly here, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, we now have a deputy mayor for international affairs. I know New York has a similar kind of position mm -hmm. at a slightly different title and level. And I imagine other major cities have that. And um, I've worked with that deputy mayor and, uh, you know, she has experience. She's a former ambassador and, uh, you know, real interest in international issues from the vantage point of the city of LA. And, and likewise, the Lieutenant Governor of California uh, has a kind of portfolio of, uh, under the current administration in California for dealing with international affairs. And so in both cases, you see activity that, you know, may or may not be coordinated. Uh, and so, and that's in a, this is in a context where the entire state is quite, quite democratic and progressive. But as you point out, that's not always the case. So it does raise a multitude of kind of jurisdictional questions. Uh, and as you pointed out, there are things we just, I think, whatever your particular political stance probably would not want the states to be able to do. On the other hand, it does seem uh, useful to give states the ability, and I assume that's why we've seen this acquiescence over so many uh, decades uh, in terms of these agreements, is that it, it's very functional. And so that line drawing exercise is pretty, seems pretty important. Uh, but it sounds like we haven't really, or the courts have certainly not done that. Now, before we close, I just want to go back to something you started off with, which you mentioned a, a case, the 19th century case. So I'm just curious if you could tell us a little bit about that. And does it bear in any interesting way on the issues we've been discussing today? Yeah, that had to do with whether Vermont could extradite someone to Canada in the absence of a federal, um, federal extradition treaty. Uh, and the court went ahead, um, I think it's a, it may, be, may even be a plurality opinion, went ahead and held, um, held no. And that's really the only, only case we have that's anywhere 
uh, in this space. Now, how much uh, weight to give to that particular holding uh, with an intervening almost 200 years of practice and a world in which a lot of the international cooperation that's going on along is in, in the, not in the like what's hand, hand people over sense, but it's, in, it's a regulatory standard setting cooperation, uh, which is what the, this is one, this is one species of it. That, that's, a, I think, to, to me, a very different question. Um, but these are, again, the, the district court that's lucky enough to, to get this case is going to be grappling with it, with all of this. Great. Well, thank you, Jean, for, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I imagine when, uh, when the case is handed down, it sounds like you, your prediction is it's going to take quite a while uh, for this to be handed down. We may want to revisit this. Uh, I'm guessing there's going to be amicus briefs, uh, numerous ones. Uh, will you be filing one? Uh, I don't know. I haven't gotten there, Cal. Okay. Okay. Well, I hope you do, because uh, it sounds like the courts will need some guidance, and uh, this will raise a lot of uh, a lot of uh, frontier issues for them. So, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Cal.